World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In the 1990s, Balkan countries were notorious for their organized crime. But that generation of gangsters has been locked up or retired. A new report suggests a new generation is more nimble, more tech-savvy, more international, and tougher to beat. And an ambitious Mars mission is set to launch in America today. The Red Planet will soon be a busy place. In the past 10 days, both China and the United Arab Emirates have launched their own missions. We look at the science and the politics of the Mars race. But first... Every single country in the world has imposed travel restrictions because of COVID-19. There are more than 65,000 rules in total. And it'll be a long time before globetrotters can trot freely again. For those hoping for a summertime getaway, it's annoying. But for would-be migrants, it can be life-shattering. Tens of millions who would have set off to start a new life this year can't go. And tens of millions more who had already migrated have lost their jobs. But foreign nationals don't always get the same support as citizens. In South Africa, there are millions of migrants from other parts of Africa. John McDermott is our chief Africa correspondent. Most of these people work in low-paying jobs. They live hand-to-mouth, whether as domestic workers, construction workers, or in the hospitality sector. And naturally, the response to the pandemic has been very hard on them. A few weeks ago, I went down to Hillbrow in Johannesburg, where I met a domestic worker from Zimbabwe named Nomsa Chishuma, who told me just how difficult it's been to survive the lockdown in the city. Yeah, we're not working, we're working, everything is stopped. She told me that her employers, a family from an affluent suburb in Johannesburg, had stopped paying her usual monthly salary. The first month they gave me the normal pay, but now they just sometimes give 200, 300, and we're paying rent where we stay. It's not easy. And when that happens, and she doesn't have a proper income, how is she supposed to pay her bills? And Nomsa's far from alone in South Africa. People who work in these low-paid jobs are now going for months without pay, and those that have gone back to work are doing so with fewer hours. When I was in Hillbrow, I spoke to Bongani Mikwananzi from the Zimbabwean community of South Africa, and he told me that there were implications beyond South Africa's borders because a lot of Zimbabweans are the main breadwinners for their families back home. The people that they normally take care of at home are now stranded. 
and uh, well there is truly it feels like hopeless like there's no recourse really so this, this the south african government has announced various measures in response to the pandemic but in the main there's been one set of rules for south africans and another set of rules for migrants this is true whether we're talking about cash grants to help people get by or whether we're talking about which businesses are targeted for closure. So migrant-run shops in townships, for example, have been disproportionately shut down by the government's pandemic regulations. When I was in Hillbrow, I witnessed an organization called the African Diaspora Forum handing out food parcels to migrants living in South Africa. One of its leaders, a Somali man called Amir Sheikh, told me that migrants are destitute and excluded from government help, so therefore many are simply relying on charity. As the coronavirus recession has started to bite, debates around migration have, in some countries, become increasingly fraught. And that raises a question. When the pandemic subsides, will the barriers stay up? There are two reasons for supposing that migration won't go back to the way it was before the pandemic. Robert Guest is our foreign editor. One is that voters are newly frightened of disease, not just this pandemic, but future ones. And many of them associate foreigners with disease. The other reason is because unemployment is surging around the world. And a lot of people believe that if a foreigner has taken a job, that means there's not a job available for a local. And, and how would you respond to those arguments? These are very emotive arguments, and they're very electorally powerful, but they don't really stand up. In normal times, the vast majority of travellers are not migrants, they're short-term tourists and business travels. So if you want controls to stop disease, you've got to apply them to everyone. And the most important ones are the ones that are within countries. The idea of singling out just foreigners as a way of protecting yourself from future pandemics doesn't make any sense at all. And the idea that one more job for a migrant is one less job for a local, well, it's an example of what's known as the lump of labour fallacy in economics. That when a migrant comes, they're spending money, which is creating demand, which creates more jobs. They're also bringing ideas and skills. So overall, the evidence is that they tend to increase employment for locals. And certainly, you can craft immigration policies to make sure that that is what happens. But at, at the same time, in many places, there seems to be a greater appreciation of migrant labor, for example, in Britain's National Health Service. Yes, the other thing that we're seeing in a lot of countries around the world is that people have noticed that migrants are disproportionately likely to do the essential jobs that really need doing during a pandemic. Most obviously, in the health sector, you're seeing in many countries they are vastly overrepresented among doctors, nurses, and the people who mop and disinfect the floors of hospitals. They're also disproportionately represented in the kinds of job that enable people to carry on working during lockdown. The people who process food and deliver it to your door, and the people who maintain the IT system that enables people to work from home. And finally, migrants are tremendously influential in innovation, so, for example, in America, 40% of medical and life sciences researchers are migrants. If you look at the Oxford vaccine group, they have scientists from pretty much everywhere in the world. And it's that collaboration of people from lots of different parts of the world bouncing ideas off each other that really drives progress. And so how do you see those different perspectives playing out as you look across the world at the moment? 
There are some leaders in the world, and Donald Trump is the most prominent of them, who are really doubling down on the idea that the way to stop disease and the way to create more jobs for locals is to keep foreigners out. He's suspended the issuing of visas for virtually every category of migrant and even of intracompany transfers, people who are sent from head office outside America to a subsidiary in America to solve bottlenecks, manage problems. I mean, it's extraordinary how much damage that is going to do to America's recovery. And which countries, to your mind, are handling it better, getting around these fallacies and and thinking about this in the right way? In Japan, for example, the government has become more explicitly pro-migrant since the pandemic began. Lots of people got laid off from jobs in, say, hotels, but Japan has such a labour shortage of young people that they needed them to work in hospitals and care homes and so forth. In Britain as well, attitudes towards immigration and immigrants themselves have grown significantly more favourable since the Brexit vote in 2016. So when the government recently decided that it was going to offer a residency to up to 3 million people from Hong Kong, there was barely an objection from anyone, which would be very hard to imagine if it had happened three years ago. And so where does all of this end up then with these varying arguments and and examples? Do you think the world will become more or, or less restrictive for migrants? Overall, I fear that the world is going to become more restrictive because of the pandemic. But there's a chance it won't. And one reason for thinking that is that some of the nationalist populist leaders who are most opposed to immigration have been shown to be incredibly incompetent in dealing with COVID-19. Again, Donald Trump is a prime example. There's also Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. The pandemic has increased the chance that Mr. Trump is going to lose the election in November And a subsequent president, President Joe Biden, would be able to reverse all of his executive orders keeping out migrants almost overnight. Migration makes the world richer. It spreads ideas. It's the most powerful tool we have in the battle against poverty. And it also upholds the health systems of the entire rich world. So we have to be very sceptical of leaders who tell us that a a more closed-bordered, drawbridge-up world will be safer or have more jobs in it, because that's just not true. Robert, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much, Jason. For plenty more analysis from our international network of correspondents, subscribe to The Economist. To find the best introductory offer wherever you are, just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer. Seven in ten full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. In the 1990s, the Balkans became a hotspot for organized crime as the region was rocked by war. Tomorrow, a court in Belgrade will deliver its verdict after a decade-long cocaine smuggling trial of one of the biggest names from that era, Darko Saric. Most of the Balkan gangsters from the 1990s are retired, imprisoned, or dead. But a new report by the Global Initiative Against Organized Crime says they've been replaced by a younger generation of tech-savvy criminals. Its global reach and 21st century business model far surpasses its predecessors. 
The conclusions are that organized crime from the former Yugoslavia and the Balkans in general has really matured and become much more sophisticated. Tim Judah is The Economist's Balkans correspondent. And now is part of the Premier League, as they say, of organized crime in the world. Um, the report finds that a lot of the first generation of gang leaders uh, from the region who made it big in the 1990s are now dead, retired or in jail and that they've been replaced by a younger generation of much more tech-savvy and sophisticated criminals. And they also find that, contrary to misperceptions, um, we talk about a kind of Balkan cartels or Albanian mafia, but in fact there's no such thing. There are a plethora of small but powerful groups from across the Balkans and across the Albanian-speaking world which play in this uh, premier league of world-organized crime. And so how is it that this, this younger generation of, of gangs then operates? Well, the report says that their business model is unbeatable. What they mean by that is that they've got home bases in their own countries. They now have extremely good contacts with South American uh, drug producers. And they also have good contacts and their own people, perhaps, in major European ports, such as Rotterdam, which helps drugs being moved around, for example, in containers they also have a network of uh, sailors. For example, Montenegrins are, have long been known as sailors, but they're, they're a coastal state. And then finally, there are diasporas in Holland, in Britain, in Germany. It's very easy to recruit people to distribute and sell drugs amongst those diasporas. And how do these, these gangs fit in with a wider picture of, of international organized crime? In the past, what you had was small-time criminals from the Balkans who made it big. Now, they're playing on a sort of much more equal level. So uh, if you look at Italy, for example, although there has been some conflict with Italian mafias, there's also been cooperation and uh, collaboration. And other mafias, for example, Nigerians or even Chinese who operate in Italy. Another way that um, they've changed is they've become much more sophisticated this week, we've been waiting uh, for a verdict on a man called Darko Sharic, who's a Montenegrin gangster who's already been convicted for um, smuggling 5.7 tonnes of cocaine from South America. What he did was that he then invested, allegedly, a lot of his money in real estate uh, companies and land in Serbia. But now it seems that the next generation have become a rather more sophisticated and they're using cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, and all sorts of kind of modern technology to hide the way they do business. And if a lot of these operations have become so international, then, then what effects do these gangs have on, on the countries where they're from? Well, there are two ways that they can have an effect. One is kind of directly, but by that I mean investment in real estate and construction and other businesses, which of course can distort those markets. Then there can be the occasional battles between gangs. That's been very much the case in the last five years in Montenegro, where various gangs have been sort of fighting turf wars. But an interesting thing that has happened is that a lot of these gangs, which in the past could have kind of overlapped with politics or politicians, and they may have sought maybe protection from politicians, one of the things that's happening is that some of the gangs are finding this kind of quite burdensome. And in fact, they'd rather be free of that sort of patronage, which will, of course, um, involve sort of obligations. So 
some of the really big timers now have basically outgrown the Balkans. It means that they might be based in the Netherlands, do business with South America, export drugs to Britain. And, you know, none of the business might touch the Balkans. So that's one way that uh, things have changed in the last few years. And how does all this affect the people that live in the countries where these gangsters come from? One of the problems is that they still burden their home countries and hence the citizens of their home countries with a reputation for being these homes of organised crime. Now that's important because it means it slows up their EU accession process, which is important for people or for many people in the region. And it can really have an effect on people. For example, Kosovars are the only people in Europe who don't have freedom of movement. So basically everybody from Lisbon to the Russian border can travel freely within the Schengen zone in Europe, except for Kosovars. And what's the reason? Well, interior ministers always raise objections when the issue of visa liberalisation comes up from Kosovars because they talk about organised crime. It's unfair, of course, because if you're a sort of proper serious gangster, you're never going to be queuing up to apply for a visa. You'll have a fake passport or you'll get your visas somehow in another way. But it's just an example of how it can affect people negatively. So given this sort of uh, fragmented nature and the, this, uh, what the report calls an unbeatable business model, I mean, where, where do you see this going? What's next for these Balkan gangs? In general terms, the police and the intelligence services are much, much better informed about this problem than they used to be. And there is a lot more cooperation than there used to be. So while these gangs have kind of got richer and more sophisticated, I think it's true to say that police forces have also got more savvy and cooperate better than ever. For example, in February of this year, off the coast of Aruba in um, the Caribbean, there was a joint operation between Serbian, Montenegrin, Dutch and British police, which led to a major bust. There was also a well-known case in 2017 whereby police forces from several countries intercepted a catamaran which was smuggling 840 kilos of cocaine from the Caribbean to Europe. And that led to the arrest of crew members from Bosnia, Montenegro and uh, Serbia. So actually, while the criminals are going from strength to strength, the police are also moving, if perhaps uh, one step behind them. Tim, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Today, NASA's latest mission to Mars is set to launch. Perseverance will be the Red Planet's most advanced visitor yet, part of a decade-long plan to get Martian rocks back to Earth. But it's not the only Mars mission this summer. Ten days ago, the United Arab Emirates launched its first-ever interplanetary mission, Al-Amal, or HOPE. And a week ago, it was China's Tianwen-1. Each has its own study plan of the planet's atmosphere, its weather, its geology, or that most compelling question, whether it's played host to life. But quite aside from the science, these missions are a matter of international bragging rights and good timing. The reason there are so many missions on their way to Mars right now is because of a happy alignment between the two planets. Alec Jha is The Economist's science correspondent. 
So every couple of years, Earth and Mars are aligned in their orbit around the Sun so that it only takes six months to travel from Earth to Mars. I mean, in a sense, the, the, the NASA launch is, is not much of a surprise. But what, what do you make about the UAE and China and those ambitious missions? A lot of what they're doing in terms of sending these probes is to show that they're technologically capable. China's space agency is several decades old. It's been rising in the ranks of scientific achievement, technological achievement. It wants to show the world that it can do something and also contribute to scientific knowledge, which is what any developed nation does. For the UAE, one of the most important reasons is to inspire young engineers to turn their economy from something that's based on oil and fossil fuels to knowledge and green energy and other things in the future. And also, when the Al-Amal mission arrives at Mars, it will be the 50th anniversary of the UAE. So, you know, something for them to celebrate too. And so what is it that these missions are aiming to find out? So the Chinese missions are a little bit shrouded in mystery. They've released some information. They want to do geological explorations of the surface and subsurface of Mars, look for where the water ice is, and also test technology. So they want to land on Mars using a very sophisticated sort of landing mechanism. The UAE mission is an orbiter, and so its specific goal will be to look at the weather systems around Mars, to study the atmosphere over a whole Martian year. Sarah Al-Amiri, who's leading the UAE mission, said that one of the major points of their whole project was to become part of this international space community. One of our national priority objectives is to ensure that this mission has scientific merit, produces scientific data that no other mission is currently being designed for so that scientists can benefit from this mission. It's not about competing. It's about collaboration. And it's about moving forward with that and being open with it. And today the launch window opens for NASA's effort here, Perseverance. Perseverance is going to be NASA's most sophisticated mission to Mars. And it will specifically look for signs of life. And Perseverance is also the first part of a very ambitious decade-long plan to bring Martian rocks back to Earth. And so Perseverance will, will take samples from the surface of Mars, put them into little titanium tubes and seal them up and leave them on the surface. And within the next eight or nine years, another rover will land on Mars, European Space Agency built, and pick those titanium tubes up and through a cosmic relay race, bring them back to Earth. It's incredibly complicated and ambitious and uh, it could be amazing if it works. So all being well today, it will be three missions on their way to the Red Planet. What happens next? When do we hear from any of them? So they will arrive, if all goes well, in February 2021. Then they all have different mission plans about when the rovers get onto the surface. But the next thing you should hear is in about six months. Alok, thank you very much for joining us. You're very welcome. This week, Babbage, our sister podcast on science and technology, explores how these current and future Mars missions will work towards answering that perennial question about life on the Red Planet and what to do if it's found. I think it's one of the most fundamental questions to humanity, are we alone? So I do think we should explore it carefully, trying to mitigate any potential damage that we cause to the best of our ability. If we find evidence of life, to be very cautious in how we go about exploring that life. Look for Babbage from Economist Radio wherever fine podcasts are sold and traded. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and see you back here tomorrow. 
World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.